Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello. That music is, I think, more uh, festive and party-like than it than it feels like in the world today and in the uh, the gray and bitter and cold and rainy Northeast. This is April. This is really April. All right. So uh, we're gonna we have a lot of things to talk about today. Uh, it's been a busy weekend. Uh, increasingly, I think we struggle with the question: Is this one big mess of a story? Uh, everything kind of just smushing together into one. You know. What do they call those things that clog up the suit? Fatberg? We have one big fatberg of uh, just dreadful, dysfunctional government news. Or are these individual threads? That's one of the things we'll try to explore today. Uh, in the uh, final part of our show today, we're going to talk to Phil Clay. He is a Marine turned author, uh, and uh, he is somebody who writes a lot about military issues. He's going to talk about how difficult it is for the military when there's a lot of military activity but no articulated strategy or policy goals going along with it. Uh, but for now, we're going to talk about the other mess, the, uh, the mess in Washington, the legal messes uh, of the Trump administration. Uh, joining us to do that uh, by phone, we have Jeremy Stahl, from, uh, who's the senior editor at Slate Magazine. Joining us uh, by studio connection to The Washington Post, Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post. Uh, I will say that uh, I am a member of the Margaret Sullivan Fan Club. Uh, we'll all be meeting at 3 o'clock today to see if Margaret wins the Pulitzer the way we think she should. Uh, but I don't mean to jinx you, though. Uh, <laughs> I can already tell you that's not going to happen. But you thank you. Thank you, you for being in the fan club. You don't know that. You don't know whether you're winning the Pulitzer no, yes, or I not. Um, all right. So um, it's hard to know where to begin. But one of the points that you've been making the, that you've made in your column this week is something that I've thought a lot about, too, this year. I sort of went back and restudied Watergate and listened to uh, Slow Burn, the terrific Slate podcast about this. Um, and every time you talk to anybody about Watergate and compare it to the the current moment, there's sort of two interesting qu questions that pop up. One of them, and it's very well addressed by Slow Burn, is do people know what kind of situation they're in when they're in the situation? Uh, and the other one is what would happen today? What's, what are the differences between then and now? So, Margaret, that latter question is one that you've been exploring. There wasn't really anything comparable to Fox News or any of the other attendant, highly conservative uh, kind of single ideology organs of the press back then. What difference do you think it makes that there is? Well, what you have with Fox News is a is a constant pro-Trump cheering section that never lets up. And that's not true of every moment on Fox. You know, they have some good journalists and they do actual news sometimes, but their commentary, certainly people like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson and others are, you know, keeping this drumbeat up of um, you know, the the deep state conspiracy against Trump. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, there's a whole group of people who are trying to bring him down. And this tends to undermine the thinking that the rule of law actually matters, which is, you know, during the Nixon era and the Watergate era, there certainly were plenty of people who didn't accept that his administration and he had done anything wrong for a long time. 
but there wasn't a consistent cheering section that was, you, you know, keeping this drumbeat going. So I think that's the that's a huge difference. And Fox News has been around since 1996. It wasn't there in 1973 when the Saturday night massacre happened. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, going back and listening to, to Leon Nafak's terrific podcast, and I went back and read Michael, uh, reread Michael Shudson's Watergate in American Memory, which is one of the, for me one of the really great books about this. And the point both of those made was that the press can never do this alone. It always takes, you know, the press can help, the press can, can provide a certain amount of, put a little bit of gas in the tank, you know, keep some forward momentum going. But Watergate really turned when James McCord wrote his letter to Judge Sirica. So much of the things that our Watergate were the work of investigators uh, on the on the congressional committees um, and and the work of judges and prosecutors uh, and then ultimately the political apparatus that got engaged and you know the press then plays a pretty significant role in keeping that story alive so I mean in a way Margaret you look at Fox and you wonder well yeah I mean it is a very different situation but you wonder how much they can do for a Donald Trump. And you also wonder whether maybe it makes more sense. I mean, today there's quite a bit of coverage of Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina. He's one of the few Republicans stepping forward to do a kind of protect Mueller uh, resolution. You kind of wonder, maybe those are the big players. Maybe we overestimate the role of the press anyway. Right. And I mean, it's very hard to know exactly what's happening. You know, we don't have the we we have no 2020 hindsight because we're right in the middle of it. And that's where uh, and I know you want to talk about this. Adam Davidson's story in The New Yorker a couple of days ago, you know, made the point that we're actually we're actually at the beginning of the end here um, of the Trump presidency and that when we were at the beginning of the end of other things, um, you know, like the huge financial crisis, uh, um, we didn't know it uh, or what was happening in, in Iraq. We, we didn't know it until further along down the road. But he recognizes the signs and says it's it's you know, it's all over but the shouting of which there will be plenty um, let me uh, add Jeremy Stahl to the conversation that we're having. So the Adam Davison piece, and, and there have been other pieces like this. Jonathan Shait wrote one a, a week or two ago, kind of making the argument that this, the story of the Trump administration, and if we're on the downward slope of the Trump uh, administration, the story of that downward uh, slope is less an exotic le carré tale of Russian collusion and more closely linked to kind of garden variety uh, economic financial corruption. I mean, very polymorphous and internationally based uh, financial corruption that's going to probably take place on a lot of different fronts. Uh, Jeremy, you've been following all of these stories so closely. Um, How well does that resonate with you? The broader argument that Adam Davidson made very well in The New Yorker this week that this was a turning point week because we saw what was going on um, in the Southern District of New York with the raids of uh, Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen's office, um, really, really resonated with me. And it it seemed like a, a significant moment. And it's not just um, what happened, but who was doing it. And, you know, speaking with multiple, uh, several former prosecutors and um, experts in the DOJ and this sort of thing who know this sort of stuff, they, they can clearly see that this is kind of tentacled out in a way that is going to make it very, very hard um, for Trump to resta- respond to with any potential further 
um, obstruction that people were fearing about, fearing such as the possibility of uh, firing Rod Rosenstein, the possibility of trying to get somebody to fire Robert Mueller. So that resonated very, very strongly with me. The broader question of uh, the smaller question that you asked of uh, how the how this might come down to more, you know, kind of opaque and uh, not necessarily Russia collusion, but these sort of business dealings in like Georgia and Kazakhstan and these former uh, Soviet satellites that resonated less because I, I find it difficult to believe that the political will that Margaret and you just talked about being so necessary to effectuate some sort of response to this could come from those kind of, you know, business situations. Right. And I mean, Jeremy, one thing that we can say, and we'll be talking a bit now about what happens if Donald Trump decides uh, having just run out of patience with this whole thing or getting very panicky if he decides to take some drastic move. It does look like Robert Mueller has Trump-proofed himself a little bit. He's got a staff full of prosecutors uh, who could take over for him if he got fired. They have the right credentials and and the right background. Uh, He's diversified, uh, as you say, the investigation. So some of it isn't in his office anymore. Some of it's in the Southern District of New York. I mean, we spend a lot of time worrying about what happens if Donald Trump fires Rod Rosenstein uh, or if he fires Robert Mueller. Um, I hadn't really thought very much about what Robert Mueller thought about all that until recently. And then I thought, well, he probably is not just a passive actor, right? He probably has a plan for if he gets fired. Yeah, well, Jed Sugarman has written very smartly about how Inflate, um, he's a law professor at Fordham, and he has, he has done very good pieces for us pointing to the fact that, you know, even if Trump were to use additional means of potentially trying to block this investigation, such as uh, a pardon or something like that, that too would be difficult for uh, for him to use to obstruct anything, just because the way Mueller set this up, the way special counsel Mueller has set this up, he's given himself other avenues. And that includes not just this Southern District probe that, um, you know, the New York Times has reported is more threatening to uh, Trump and the Trump administration officials personally um, than the Mueller probe, but also he has set it up so that there is a potentiality for state investigations if somehow his own probe is thwarted. And as you said, it the, the investigation itself is made up of a team of very smart prosecutors and very capable prosecutors. And even if Somehow the investigation, the team was broken up and the investigation was dispersed among other DOJ prosecutors. It would still be in the hands of fairly capable people. It could only be slowed down at this point rather than actually fully halted. And that's the argument that Frank Bowman actually makes in Slate in the piece that is up this morning. So, Margaret Sullivan, um, one of the things that the press does in these situations, I mean, in po- political science, there's this concept of the Overton window. The Overton window are, is the things that it's acceptable to debate and talk about. Uh, and outside that Overton window, outside the frame of the Overton window, are things that are, are just not within the bounds uh, of civic and civil contemplation. And, and of course, the Overton window is just blown to bits uh, in the last uh, two or three 
three years anyway. But it does seem as though the press constantly tries to assert norms. So today, Margaret, you see the New York Times with a full page editorial with, you know, a lot of graphics kind of suggesting the angelic sounding of trumpets in the opening of the heavens. Like we've got to really make a big statement here about the rule of law. They're almost trying to preemptively um, talk about what will happen uh, uh, or what should happen if, in fact, Donald Trump does something drastic. I don't know. How effective do you think that kind of thing is? Well, in some ways, it's preaching to the choir. You know, the times, the people who who give um, a great deal of credence to what the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or other uh, large, you know, mainstream elite news organizations do um, probably already believe the things that are in that editorial. But you have large swaths of the country um, and significant numbers of members of Congress who um, either don't agree or don't think that it will be in their interests to get behind that. So while it's impressive and it's worth saying and it's true um, and, you know, kudos and all that, I, I'm not sure it really changes anything. Of course, I'm not – I'm never really sure that any editorial uh, in any newspaper ever changes anything, which doesn't mean that they're not worth doing. But, the, you know, they are of – they're not necessarily – there's not a cause and effect uh, based on what they do. But they're but, still – they're yeah. still worthwhile. Well, and I, I think, you know, the first ring of people who read an editorial like that in The New York Times or The Washington Post uh, are people in Washington. Uh, and those people are, are going to be the first ring of decision makers. In other words, um, what the general population feels, uh, the, what the people in mid middle America feel, uh, probably won't be conditioned very much by full-page editorials in The New York Times. On the other hand, members of Congress may have, probably will have, some kind of difficult decisions to make in the very near future uh, about how they respond if there's real pushback uh, against Mueller, against the investigation. And, Margaret, I'm wondering about that. I mean, the press... I assume the press is trying to talk very specifically to them, particularly in instances like this. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I think that they're speaking, the, the press, newspapers are speaking to the general public, but they certainly know that there's a, there's a core of decision-making readers who they're also speaking to. Um, but, the, you know, the, the issue or the problem here is that uh, Republican members of Congress are very, you know, they are very loyal in their actions so far and in their statements to Donald Trump. He's very, he, you know, he, he carries a lot of weight. And by the way, despite everything that's happening, his, um, his approval figures are actually up a notch. So, you know, we may think that, and, and, and I thought Adam Davidson's piece was very persuasive too, but, you know, what, how does that play out really? What's the end game there? Is there going to be an impeachment I mean, that's hard to envision. Is Trump going to resign? I doubt it. So, you know, what happens really? Uh, well, we're going to take a very brief break here so everybody can think quietly to themselves about what happens. When we come back, we'll have more of Margaret Sullivan, uh, more of Jeremy Stahl, uh, and more of you. Please stay with us. President-elect Trump's first question was to confirm 
that it had no impact on the election. Then the conversation, to my surprise, moved into a PR conversation about how the Trump team would position this and what they could say about this. That's just not done. You also said you were struck by what they didn't ask. Very much. No one, to my recollection, asked, so what's coming next from the Russians? How might we stop it? What's the future look like? There was none of that. It was all, what can we say about what they did and how it affects the election that we just had? All right. That, of course, is the voice of James Comey. He's talking to George Stephanopoulos on ABC uh, with me uh, from The Washington Post. I'm Margaret Sullivan, media columnist uh, for The Washington Post. Jeremy Stahl, senior editor uh, at Slate magazine. Uh, I was confessing before we went on the air. I have Comey on we. I'm I'm not as excited about James Comey as at least as George Stephanopoulos wants me to be. Uh, all right. So I'm, but I want to ask, ask uh, each of each of you about this. And so, um, uh, Jeremy, maybe we can start with you. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting about James Comey is, although he is current, currently regarded as somebody whom um, Democrats and anti-Trumpists should exalt and whom pro-Trumpists should besmirch, um, he, as he revealed last night in that interview, like over and over again, as he reveals, he kind of has something to get under the skin of everybody. I mean, he, he one thing that you can say about Comey is he, he isn't really a one sided guy. I mean, he's more grossed out by Donald Trump than he is by anybody on earth right now. But 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 really, you know, it's not he's not a one trick pony that way. Yeah, I I agree with that. I also agree with your Comey on we. I did not find last night's interview particularly illuminating. And I kind of, you know, I, I feel like it maybe should have been expected that after several hours of uh, Senate testimony, James Comey had told his story and didn't have much more particularly to say that wasn't isn't currently classified. And that's that was those that was the dodge he used. And rightfully in his Senate testimony to avoid some of the harder questions surrounding this. And he's not going to answer those questions in an interview with George Stephanopoulos. So it's not going to be particularly thrilling necessarily. Um, And then to that other point, I feel like, uh, yeah, he is somebody who obviously before he was the chief antagonist of President Trump, he was actually held up. Um, right, right at the end of the campaign, as his actions were held up by Trump as something that uh, the president appreciated in um, reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation and publicly announcing that he was reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation in the waning days of the election in a way that may have swung the election. So, uh, you know, whatever you tr- may say about uh, Jim Comey and his, his action in all of these episodes. It doesn't seem like he's really in it with a partisan, a particular partisan agenda. So, Margaret Sullivan, um, we've been journalists for a, a long time. I've been a reporter. I was a newspaper reporter for 20 years before I started doing this. And I mean, one thing that tipped consistently people from the Justice Department do is they say, well, we're not going to comment on an ongoing investigation. I mean, you can ask them the question 25 different ways and they'll just say the same thing back to you. One of the weird things about James Comey all along, he's like the only FBI official who will comment on, on, on an ongoing investigation. He did it in the summer of 2016 when he initially said that he wasn't going to pursue an investigation against Hillary Clinton, but then went on to talk about all the ways that she was reckless 
ridiculous and frustrating to him. And then he did it again down the home stretch where he talked about an ongoing investigation that seemed to have a little bit more snap, crackle and pop for him uh, all of a sudden. And watching him on uh, on on ABC, I guess I was sort of having the same reaction that these guys, they're not even good at this stuff because they don't really talk to the press. That's sort of what they don't do. So there's something very odd about, you know, Comey just unburdening himself in the way that he did. I, I need to ask you a question. I guess the question is, did, did does any of that amount to anything? Well, you know, it's, it is very weird that he has, even though he, you know, portrays himself as being this you know, picture of integrity and someone who follows the rules and someone who always tells the truth. He actually has multiple times now gone outside the norms of the very organizations that he's been a part of to make sort of make his own decisions that have had very, very, uh, you know, fateful uh, consequences. And so, you know, you you he he sort of tends to talk and write one game and act another. And so, you know, you have to look at him in that context. I mean, he's a he's a fascinating figure, um, especially, I mean, in, in part, I think, to himself. You know, he is a he is a, uh, a big ego and and that's on display in a great deal of what he does. And that's an odd characteristic for someone who's been in the positions that he's been in. And I think you can contrast that with Mueller, who, you know, rarely uh, says a word, but you know, you, you have the sense that nose is to the grindstone. He's following all the rules and he's being very, very smart about everything he does and very, very uh, calculated. Uh, I don't mean that in a bad way, but just, you know, really nose to the grindstone and thinking of every possible uh, thing that may come up. Right. I mean, and that's very much what these guys typically do. They keep a very low profile until they're ready to indict somebody, and then they indict people. And Mueller has already done that. I think he now has five guilty pleas. I don't know. I've lost track of how many indictments, but I mean, he's already indicted. A lot of indictments, a lot over of, a dozen. Yeah. He's indicted a lot of people. Some and, of them were Russians. Right. And, and so, Margaret, I mean, I don't know. I, I was thinking about all that, thinking about Comey, thinking about everything that we're talking about right now. I agree that um, impeachment seems very unlikely. Um, I, I think that. The thing that does seem likely is that, um, as it should be, I think, the, the next people who are really going to weigh in on this are probably not prosecutors, although some stuff could happen in the next six months involving some of these corruption things and Michael Cohen stuff. But I think the greater likelihood is that the next group of people who are going to weigh on, in on this are voters, uh, which is the way that That's we like right. it in America. And so, I mean, mm-hmm. really, the truth, the truth is, as we head towards these November midterm elections, th- that probably is the most significant barometer of how America is reacting to everything that it's learning. It's going to be certainly seen that way, and I think it, and it will be. Um, the Washington Post is reporting today or last night that uh, the so-called blue wave that people have been anticipating uh, in the midterms is is less less certain or is weakening somewhat. And I don't know what to attribute that to, but the idea that there's going to be some sort of blue tsunami is not uh, is not a certainty by any means. So uh, I agree with you that that it is as it should be, that this ultimately um, is resolved or may be resolved at the voting booth rather than in some other in some other way. But, you know, again, as Adam Davidson said so effectively, we can't really know that right now because we're we're in it and there are news developments happening five times a day in a way that's, 
you know, exhausting and, you know, very hard to keep track of. Um, Jeremy Stahl uh, from uh, Slate. I don't know if you saw this this weekend. There was a kind of remarkable piece that Ed Erickson, who's a conservative writer who's kind of turned into a never-Trumper, did. It was hard to know whether to believe it or not. It seemed so theatrical. It was about this meeting that he'd had, a chance meeting he'd had in a supermarket with a Republican member of Congress who he never identified, but who, as they're walking up and down the frozen food aisles and stuff, is just in this profanity-laced tirade about what Trump is doing to them. Um, and, and I do think that's the that's the underreported thing. I mean, there's so many things, as Margaret said, citing Adam Davidson, so many things we don't know right now. One of the things we really don't know is what Republicans who are facing problems they never expected to have in what used to be safe seats all across the heartland of America, the people who are feeling any kind of heat, blue wave or small blue ripple, whatever it is, I would imagine there's some pretty heated conversations if they feel as though this president is hurting them that badly. Yeah, the the very memorable part of that Eric Erickson uh, purported conversation was something like uh, the congressman called Trump a dumb, evil Forrest Gump and used all sorts of other like kind of crude and obscene ways to talk about the president. But also at the same time, Erickson said is a regular promoter of the president on Fox News and TV and just goes on these cable shows and backs the president publicly all the time, which sort of speaks to this dynamic that I think has existed for a long time. We wrote, we had a piece uh, about a year ago from Michelle Goldberg, who now writes for the New York Times, talking about how, uh, you know, underneath their very public displays of support for uh, the president, there is this undercurrent of real um, you know, frustration and even disgust at times with what has happened um, in the party and in the political system uh, because of Trump. Um, at the same time, though, you know, it, he still holds such strong support among the GOP base and, and has continued to do so steadily, and nothing seems to be able to erode that, uh, that people are, you know, rightfully frightened for their own political prospects to actually confront him if we're talking from a pure political calculus perspective. And at the same time, you know, Paul Ryan resigned last week. That's something that happened, like, I guess it was less than a week ago. Mm -hmm. He he stepped down (laughs) as Speaker of the House. Who can remember these things? Yeah. Uh, Jeremy Stahl, thank you so much for being with us today. Jeremy Stahl, senior editor at Slate uh, Magazine, uh, Margaret Sullivan, media columnist for The Washington Post. If she doesn't win the Pulitzer today, Amy Schumer and I are supposed to host the awards this year. And I would think we would just both sit it out if you don't get get the Pulitzer. (laughs) Great. See you there. It's no fun for me. Uh, All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, Some nice people are going to ask you to support public broadcasting. That's how this whole thing works. So please do. Please do support public broadcasting when they ask you to. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern, Julius Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by James Comey. On tomorrow's show, what goes into making a really good theme song? Because we need one. And now, back to Colin. Right. Before we uh, go to our uh, final guest of the day, I do want to say that uh, we, we now have official word that the mayor of Hartford, Luke Bronin, has dropped out of the gubernatorial race. Uh, we'll have more details uh, on that uh, during the All Things Considered hour today. But uh, the 
rather crowded field for governor is one body less crowded right now. Uh, all right, now uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, missile strikes and about Syria, but in a much broader way. We're really going to talk about um, military policy and foreign policy uh, and what it takes to have uh, a foreign policy that's meaningful enough so that the people who put their lives on the line, the people who have to execute these military policies, understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, joining us right now is uh, someone who's been with us before, Phil Clay, uh, author of the short story collection Redeployment and a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Phil's essay on the waning morale of U.S. troops is featured in The Atlantic. Two decades of war have eroded the morale of America's troops. Um, Phil Clay, welcome back to our show. Thank you for having me again. So, Phil, you begin the essay. Uh, you tell um, a, a story uh, of two soldiers who take fire uh, in, in an exchange of fire. Uh, one of them lives through it. The other doesn't. Uh, I'll let you pick up the story. But, I mean, the Marines in that situation have to do a remarkable thing, which I cannot personally imagine doing because two of their uh, comrades have fallen uh, in battle. Right. So this was in the um, Second Battle of Fallujah. And what what happened was a Marine by the name of Lonnie Wells was crossing this highway, Route Friend, four-lane highway. Uh, you know, there's bullets flying overhead. He gets shot, and then this uh, gunnery sergeant runs out to save him, grabs uh, Lonnie Wells, starts pulling him, and then he gets shot as well. And, you know, I talked to um, a guy who was at the Battle of Fallujah, uh, the writer Elliot Ackerman, you know, remembers talking to me about not just um, what Gunny Shane had done, running out to get Lonnie Wells, but then, you know, at that point you've got two Marines, both of them are bleeding out in the middle of this highway, there's bullets all around, and, and if you've just seen this, you know, you know, if you run out to go and save these two guys, there's no reason that you're not going to get shot as well. And what happened was, you know, two more Marines run out, ran out and uh, and pulled them back. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those stories of, of you know, courage and uh, the kind of, you know, values that we talk about when we talk about a band of brothers and people are putting themselves on the line for each other. And so I started with that because I, I think, you know, it, it, it calls up all of these, these images of, of, you know, what men – you know, what men are called to do um, in a military unit when we send them overseas, right, uh, at, the, at its most extreme. And then I started asking myself about, you know, the reasons that we're putting people in those situations. Because one thing that I've noticed, and I, um, you know, I was in the military myself and a lot of friends, uh, that especially starting around 2011, I, would, I was encountering more and more people who either didn't believe in the mission that we were sending them overseas uh, to do, um, or they had difficulty even articulating what it was because it kept changing. And so, you know, it's one thing to go out and risk your life and know that you're going to be in these kind of incredible situations when you have a clear mission and end state. It's another thing altogether when we're sending people on five, six, seven deployments and the people that we're, we're putting into those situations can no longer even really articulate the mission or they don't believe that we're fully resourcing it to, to, to give us a chance of success. I think another thing that happens, Phil, is that these days, uh, and these days I would say extend further back than the simple inauguration of Donald Trump, 
there's a oh, weird yeah. there's a weird distancing that goes on. The thing that I that I used to bring up all the time, people during the campaign and even before the campaign would would talk about how we needed to go to war against ISIS or we're not doing anything in Syria or you'd hear these kinds of things. And I would say Google Operation Inherent Resolve. And there's a whole website for it and then read it because, I mean, just the amount of tonnage, you know, that, that had been dropped, the, the amount of money that had been spent uh, on, on a you know, pretty vast military operation during the Obama years the, in, for on behalf of a domestic population that, as far as I could tell, had no idea that was happening. If you were to ask the average person, do we have a major right. military operation underway in Syria and Iraq, they would go, oh, no, no, we're all done with that stuff. Well, that was by design, right? So, you know, the Obama administration tried to pull out of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. They they wanted to um, and kind of famously pulled troops out. But they also cut economic assistance and diplomatic engagement uh, with Iraq. And then uh, with the rise of ISIS, they found themselves being drawn back into the conflict. But they were very resistant to um, to calling it a war or – uh, to really um, kind of work out a policy that we as a nation were going to debate uh, and then you know make a decision about whether we're going to fully resource it or not. So you know as late as 2015, when we've got special operators on the ground and you know uh, White House spokesmen are kind of doing a tap dance, trying to say that they're not in combat even though they have been in combat, uh, or you know they're not boots on the ground. Um, Members of the administration, to include the president, were saying, you know, we've ended the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right? Even though everybody in the military knew that wasn't true. And one of the reasons for that, I think, um, you know, it, it, we can talk about uh, President Obama, we can put, talk about President Trump, and, you know, I, I can criticize individual pieces of their policy, but I think a broader thing that has happened is we no longer debate war plans anymore. We are still operating on an authorization for the use of military force from before the Iraq war, and we're using it to fight groups that didn't even exist back then. And so you have a situation where instead of the president going before Congress, announcing that he's going to war, telling them what the plan is going to be, telling them what, telling them what the benchmarks for success are going to be, uh, and then having Congress vote on that so that they can um, you know, not only put in their input but also be held accountable later. Um, you know, it just – our military policy kind of operates on, on the force of its own inertia. Um, during the campaign, you had an opportunity – well, I was watching this this forum with veterans, and suddenly this guy whose name I knew. I don't feel like I know you, but you've been on my show. It's like, hey, that's Phil Clay. So you had a chance to ask a question. What was your question? Right. So I asked Donald Trump what his plan was for after the fall of ISIS, because one thing that has you know frustrated me is, and it's it's kind of related to our our short attention span. You know, we are very good at locating an enemy target and killing them or capturing them. We've been doing that for 17, almost 17 years at this point. But over the past 17 years, we've had, we've asked a lot of Marines and soldiers and sailors to go overseas to fight, sometimes to die, taking back territory from insurgent groups, 
uh, only to have those groups bring back or to have new insurgent groups bring back the moment that we leave. We've seen this in provinces in Afghanistan. We've seen this with the rise of ISIS. And, you know, Donald Trump had famously claimed that he had a secret plan to defeat ISIS. I was, you know, fairly confident that the policy that the Department of Defense was was doing under under Obama was ultimately going to be successful in, in, in removing, you know, large portions of ISIS from the battlefield. But my concern was, what about after ISIS falls? Because if you put a lot of American blood and treasure into, you know, fighting an immediate threat, and then you don't do any follow through, um, you're just going to have, you know, an unstable region where, you know, new bad actors emerge, and there won't really be much point to what you've done. And I think this is, and you know, he, <laughs> um, then candidate Trump, uh, had a long, somewhat confusing answer where the, the, the only thing that he really said he would do was take the oil, um, which was not a particularly um, helpful suggestion. No, but I mean, you know, the the answer to your question, what happens after you defeat ISIS, is only partly a military answer. It's largely mm-hmm. uh, a, a matter of, of statesmanship and probably money and resources, right? I mean, if we just had left Europe to uh, to sift through its own rubble at the end of the Marshall Plan, I don't know what sort of political constellation w- would have sprung up uh, at the end of right. that war. And And every military leader knows this. So, you know, at this point, we've had multiple secretaries of defense to include the current one stating that you know we need to fund the state department usaid uh we've had uh major generals from you know generals at every level from chairman of the joint chiefs of staff to uh you know uh generals overseeing iraq or afghanistan talking about the you know the need for non-dod functions um i mean even mike flynn right mm-hmm. um the, uh donald trump's you know, former uh, NSA advisor, he at one point called for a Marshall Plan for the Middle East, mm-hmm. right? So it's no secret among the military that we desperately need more funding for the State Department, for USAID, for other foreign programs if our military efforts are going to have any hope of success. And they've been saying that for years. And yet, what do we do as as a you know, the public body? You know, we elect people who promise to slash the, the State Department. Uh, cut foreign aid and um, have left dozens of high-level appointments in the State Department unfilled. And so, you know, uh, and, and you know, what, what is happening under Trump is just a kind of more extreme version of some of the things that have happened under Obama, where he cut economic assistance to Iraq and then slowly scaled up uh, military strikes in Iraq, um, but without, you know, bringing in more resources. Uh, from non-military, you know, functions of government. And so, you know, at a certain point, if you're constantly playing whack-a-mole and your only interaction with countries is through the use of violence, you know, that's not a recipe for long-term success. And everybody in the military knows it. Right. And so let's circle back there and we can we can end where we began, because then the question becomes, as you try to recruit 
new soldiers, as you train, try to train the soldiers you have and motivate uh, units in the field already. Um, you know, I mean, I would, I've never been in the military, but I've always understood it to be an odd combination of things. I mean, one of the things that you are trained to do is, by and large, follow orders and not necessarily require, you know, that somebody read a bunch of books of policy out loud to you every time you're ordered to do something. On the other hand, one of the things that's clear from the people that you talk to in your article is you can't keep people in the field following a policy that doesn't exist or seems capricious or seems like the kind of thing you do while you're eating chocolate cake, that ultimately some kind of statement has to be made so that we're all on the same page? Yeah, and and service members want to feel as though, you know, the sacrifices that they're making are, are worth it, that the American public is 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 not asking them to, you know, waste their efforts or, or risk themselves without um you know any any <laughs> uh, any serious commitment on the part of the nation, uh, and so it's 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 a very strange situation to be in. Um, you know, f- for me, I personally, a lot of times when you talk to groups, that, you know, they'll say, oh, "I wish we had a draft, or I wish we had something that would bring more, you know, Americans, um, you know, closer to to, to thinking about our, our military adventures and misadventures overseas." I don't think we'll ever have that, but I do think that at the very least. You know, if we're going to be at war, if we're going to be in a state of perpetual war, you know, the you know the, the founders originally wanted us to have to vote every two years, just to say whether there was going to be a standing army, right? I would like to see the president have to go an authorization of military force that requires the president every two years to come before Congress to say what the mission is, what we expect to get out of it, what the benchmarks of success would be, what resources it would require to be successful, and then have every member of Congress vote on it. Right. Sounds reasonable uh, to and, me. And, hey, Phil, we're going yeah, to have to we're and, just going to have to wrap it up there. We're, we're, we're out of time. But that sounds like a very, very reasonable proposal. Uh, Phil Clay, yeah. author of the short story collection Redeployment, uh, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, read his essay on the waning morale of U.S. troops featured in the Atlantic. Uh, we have to run here. We have to leave early because there's very nice people sitting and waiting in another studio asking you to support programming like this one. If you like to hear a show where you hear somebody like Phil Clay, where you hear Margaret Sullivan and Jeremy Stahl, where we do our best, particularly on Mondays, to try to help you understand what's going on in a very chaotic information environment. I hope you will support us. If you support us now, we get a little extra credit for it.